0: mortality is very real and it's very present it it just makes me more committed to like naming those things when they come up so that at the very least me not knowing what's going to happen like at the end of this interview tomorrow the next day I can at least say like I'm having and have had all the conversations that I feel like I need to have to feel like if something happened I wouldn't be sitting with a whole big long list of regrets and things I wish I had told people
1: Hi friends, it's your host, Lisa Keefoffer here. In case you're new to Grief as a Sneaky Bitch podcast, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. It's a show I created to explore the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, well, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life too with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet, individually and collectively, well, we're not so great at grief. I sometimes think we're grief illiterate, and that's causing us all so much harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief, one conversation at a time. And I'm so glad you're joining me. Today's episode is brought to you by Empathy. Empathy. After someone close to you dies, a mountain of tasks and decisions awaits in the days and weeks and even months to come. Planning a funeral, finding important documents, settling the estate, it can seem impossible, but it doesn't have to be. Empathy supports you in the days, weeks, and months after losing a loved one, helping with everything you and your family need to take care of. From writing the obituary to closing accounts and claiming benefits, they're there for you every step of the way. You can also chat in real time with one of Empathy's care specialists who can give you all the support, advice, and assistance you require. Empathy's aim is to lessen the burden of loss so that you can focus on the things that really matter. GSB listeners get a complimentary phone consultation call with a care specialist. Get immediate support and guidance for your particular situation today. Go to www.empathy.com forward slash GSB for more information. Friends, I'm thrilled to bring you this beautiful and rich conversation I had with Naomi Edmondson. Naomi offers so much wisdom and insight as she explores her experiences and lessons learned after losing both a mother figure and her mother. She also shares the journey she's been on creating safer spaces in grief for Black people, something she felt missing in her early grief, where she was often the only Black queer person in the room. We explore the expectations we have about being alongside someone in their dying process and the importance of truly being seen and held in grief. Naomi, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a long time. Thanks so much for
0: having me and thinking of me.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I know we're going to explore today your personal, your individual, kind of your professional experiences and perspectives in the space of grief and death and dying and death care. But I want to begin our conversation where I do with all of my guests. And that just comes from my sort of narrative roots and starting to understand, have you share with us your earliest memories of grief as a child? And in particular, I'm always curious to have people think about what grief beliefs they learned through the implicit or explicit behaviors or messages they saw, mostly from the adults, because that's what happens when we're young, right? We learn from them. So when you think back to your young or middle childhood, what's an early memory of grief that comes to mind? And what do you think you learned reflecting back now?
0: That's such an interesting question. I've never taken the time to pause and think about that. But sitting in this moment, the first memory that comes up, early experiences of grief, would have to be in the church, like going to funerals. And I hadn't been to a funeral for somebody that I knew particularly well or closely, but like my earliest memories are just like growing up in like Black Pentecostal church and like going to services and like the pageantry of it and how it was like very much a communal experience and just the way that people really would like embrace their grief, like seeing people fall out and be visibly upset and cry and sing and all of that. So that those are some of my earliest memories. And I think what that taught me from looking back on it was that grief is supposed to be a communal experience we are supposed to experience it in community with each other. And that looks like, you know, the aftermath of people coming to bring you food or like check in on you or to do like the day-to-day things that you can't in that moment, or really to just like witness you and like witness you in a profound state of loss is like the rawest version of yourself and allowing you to just be. So I think those are my earliest memories of grief. But then on the flip side of that too, I also feel like sort of in my household, we didn't really talk about grief. So it's like seeing it in a church setting and like seeing it in such a raw form, but then like coming home and not really having that
1: mirrored. Yeah. Wow. What an interesting, as you're saying, almost in some ways, a little dichotomy sort of you're experiencing these multiple ways in which grief is expressed or discussed or not. But I appreciate something, I I appreciated much of what you said, but two things really resonated for me. One was just the appreciation for the quality of just the sheer act of witnessing someone in their full loss. And I know you and I have talked before our conversation today, this holding space and bearing witness is a shared passion of ours. So I love that you shared that, but also the reminder, the such important reminder, which is why I do my work. I think it's a lot why you do your work of being in community in our healing, in our grief and in our healing. We can't really do either unless we're sort of held in community. So I sort of was carried along and was envisioning kind of what that pageantry and what that experience was like. So thanks for walking us there. I'm always pleasantly surprised and curious and interested to hear the various answers I've heard over the course of doing this show. And I actually teach undergraduate loss and grief, and I ask my undergraduate students to think about that. And um, I think just the sheer asking of a question gets people thinking about things in a new way. So that was your growing up. There wasn't sort of personal loss in your family, though it sounds like loss and grief in general wasn't happening in your kind of nuclear family or in your growing up family. But I know later on, and I don't know quite the timeline, how I ended up getting to know you and the work that you're doing with The Glorious Hum came about because of a series of losses, I think. You're a mother figure and then your own mother. Begin to tell me first, maybe a little bit about your mother figure. I always like to invite people to tell us about their spirit and their life before we talk about their death, because I think I want to bring us into community with that person as you're carrying their memory forward. So maybe let's start with your mother figure. And What was her name? Yes. And-
0: her name was Jalila. She was the mother of my partner at the time. And I met her sort of towards the end of her life after she had received um, a terminal diagnosis. But she was just so, so funny and like so spirited and so full of life and had such a big, warm personality. I remember like one of the first memories that I have of like spending time with her was one of the first times that I had met her and I was with my partner at the time and I had to come home like to her house to visit and it was like she has such a big family so it was just um, at the time like my partner walked in and it was just like all the kids the cousins were just all over her and just going off with the other cousins to like catch up and I remember like standing there and her mom was sitting on the couch like very much like watching TV and just like covered in blankets and I remember she like looked at me and she was like you're overwhelmed too aren't you? And we just like <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) sat down. I think we were like half watching Scarface and just like half talking to each other, but she was just so that person to like see you and pick up on what you were bringing and just be like, oh yeah, I'm there too. And just had such a wonderful sense of humor. Even towards the end was like cracking jokes and just being so funny, but at the same time was like so deeply honest about where she was in that experience and how hard it was for her to be at this point. And like accepting that she was dying
1: so I and how old yeah. were you around at this time I was in I was in
0: my 20s so I want to say like 24
1: okay still a really a young adult quite. And, and this being sounds like your first very intimate experience of watching someone in the dying process and yes very much so yes mm-hmm. what do you think you if you sort of put yourself back in that 24 year old mind version of yourself how do you think you were processing what was happening at the time or not, you know? Like was there fear, was there anxiety? Were you able to be present in the way that you might want to show up now with the wisdom you have from the life that you've gained since?
0: Yeah, to be honest, looking back at it, I I'm pretty proud of how I showed up. I showed up as best I could because I also was still working at the time. So I showed up as best I could for my partner at the time and for her mother at the time, like getting to know her while also understanding the fact that she was dying. And I was also traveling like a bit, like to go back and forth while also working. There was definitely anxiety. There was definitely a lot of confusion. There was a lot of fear and there was just that feeling of, Oh God, like I'm just getting to know her. And, and like, she's she's dying that's such a hard thing to reconcile with that feeling of wanting more time and my partner at the time being right there like that's that's her mother being like that like we i think there was just that overall feeling of like wanting more time and again that was really like the first major loss that i had had of somebody that i had gotten to know and loved and formed a relationship with and there was just like that feeling of I guess anticipatory grief, now that I have the language for it, that feeling of like knowing that it's happening, it's happening in real time, but not knowing when. So like that feeling of maybe we would step away to go to like Dairy Queen for something and we'd be having a good time. But then there's that feeling of like, oh, we can't be away from the house for too long because what are we going to come back to?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. The complexity of being present, you know, facing these hard, existential questions in at 24, you know, for someone you love, but also I like the way you said, now that I have language for it and naming it as anticipatory grief. And I know part of our sort of collective work is to help make visible all these terms and these language, not because we need to be experts in terms, but because having a definition or having a name for something helps make sense of our own experiences, which can feel very isolating, confusing, we can sort of pathologize ourselves like something's wrong with me. So I like, I appreciate that you even just sort of named the fact like, oh, now looking back, that was anticipatory grief.
0: Oh, absolutely. I feel like we've talked about this importance of language and grief doesn't need to be defined and it doesn't need all of those terms, but there is something really comforting about coming across like a, a phrase and you're like, that's it. That's what I'm feeling. There's a name for it. And if there's a name for it, that means other people have been experiencing it. So it's not just me.
1: Yeah. Well, and there's so many reasons why that's important. Grief in general is so isolating. And so then to have language or terms, as you said, not because you know, you have to fit into some box, but it sort of helps tether us back into kind of community, which is kind of where we're starting. Like, oh, it's not just me. There are other people who have felt this feeling. There are other people who have continued to live lives beyond this time of this feeling, which we desperately need when we're in the depth of our fear, our pain, our grief, whatever. Yeah. So she had an illness, a diagnosis. And from from the time you met her till the time she passed, how long about was that?
0: I want to, my God, it's, it's so funny how just like grief brain works in those moments. It like, what, what did time even mean? I want to say a year, but honestly, like a year at most, to be honest, I feel like it was pretty quick um, and it all just kind of felt like a blur. Like it felt like hearing it and then figuring things out and then like quickly moving into like going there to like be with her and like having to, or I guess not really me, but just like witnessing like what the family was then going through and trying to reconcile all of these new realities so quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is the thing that I think we don't think about then. And were you there? Did you have a chance to be there with Jalila or sort of- I
0: did. I feel really, really grateful for the time that I got to like be with her in her home and just like being with her, but also like seeing the family, seeing a family go through loss and like navigating that together in ways that are like, Really, really beautiful, but at the same time, like just really raw. Raw, We're not always sometimes
1: complicated, and we all do it differently. Totally
0: complicated, and like like we're not always the best versions of ourselves when we're undergoing like profound loss, and that's okay, you know.
1: Nope, we are not. That's really important. Let's just pause and reflect. That one, we're not always the best versions of ourselves, and that's okay. We have to find some grace and pain because we are responding from this very viscerally, you know nervous system kind of reaction. And we that's happening before our sort of intellectual brain can kind of come online sometimes and say like, oh, maybe don't say that. Or yeah. Maybe don't know. do that. Oh, maybe, maybe this isn't the time that. for that conversation. Maybe we're not going to rehash, you know, the thing maybe that happened. We're not going to bring right up now. that thing in
0: third grade.
1: Exactly. It's like, no, it needs to
0: come out. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, our lizard brain kind of comes online there for sure. Absolutely. So I appreciate that. I think even so many families, so many of us have so much pressure and some of us have regret about the ways in which we behaved in families around towards end of life. And while I hope the kinds of conversations I have on the show and others are having on theirs to help us feel more comfortable with those conversations, we also have to give ourselves permission. You're not the only family where people got messy or people's different grief styles came out in ways that caused conflict. And that doesn't mean you didn't do your best to be present and to honor. It's just the messy nature of grief. It's hard. It's just hard. It's so
0: hard. And it's like hard, not by choice. Like no one's opting into grief. None of us are like experts before it happens. We're all just finding our way in the dark.
1: Yeah. And for you at that time, that was sort of your first personal grief experience. Yes. And for many of us, even if we've lost somebody before, as I always say to people when they say like, I should know how to do this before. Mm-hmm. No, because you've never experienced this loss before mm-hmm. as this version of yourself yes, in this particular relationship. And so while we may gain some cumulative wisdom over time, mm-hmm. we hope, most yes. of us, we hope that we do that. We're still navigating it with something completely new, which is just inherently messy, which we don't really like as humans. We mm. like our stories to be
0: creatures a habit too. We yeah. like things that we can expect and like happy things that we can expect. And also just because you have had experiences with loss, it mean like it doesn't mean that you're used to it. Yeah. Every single loss is different. Every single loss is gonna bring up different things. And like as you said, we experience loss as like those current versions of ourselves. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. So, you know, to have some self-compassion and some grace for ourselves as we move through our different losses. And even as we look back and make meaning or re-sort of experience our loss from the more mature perspective, that's going to change too. Thank you for sharing Jalila with us and the way she was able to see through the noise Mm, and connect directly with you. I really love that quality. I'm going to remember that. It's, It's definitely something to admire. So that happened kind of 24, 25. Mm-hmm. And I know then you ended up being alongside your mom in her illness in a caregiving role and her death. How many years, walk us through the timeline then.
0: So Jalila passed and I want to say, I want to say like, like about six or seven years passed. And in that space of okay. time, I had really been thinking about Her loss and just the fact that she was really lucky to have like such a big family unit there to support. And it really just got me thinking about, especially here in New York, um, in Brooklyn, on the land of the Lenape, where I am, so many people die alone and unrecognized and Mm -hmm. unacknowledged. And I found myself like really wanting to shift into like hospice volunteer work because I really just wanted people who are dying to have at least one person who is like there and recognizing the fact that they're leaving the earth. That's a it's a pretty big deal. Like yeah. we all are just like so babied and cared for when we come in. Like we should have that same care when we're leaving, no matter who we are. Yeah. So I did some volunteer training for visiting nurse services, which I volunteer with now. And then around that time I also did an end-of-life training program through Growing with Grace, which is really wonderful.
1: Oh yeah. I've heard amazing things. Amazing. So wonderful.
0: And then shortly after that training, my grandmother, my mother, Evelyn Edmondson, she had a massive heart attack and she died. Mm. Honestly, the hardest part was that I had, um, I was leaving like my job at the time and it was, it was like really confident in my decision to leave because it wasn't quite for me. And the day after my, my last day of work. And I was so excited. It was like my last day. So yeah. looking forward to what comes next. And it, that was the 23rd. And then she had a heart attack on the 24th. And then she passed on the 27th. And then January, we were already in a new year. So it was just like one thing after yeah. the other. And then it was New Year's. And I just yeah. remember sitting and thinking like, it is so bizarre that I'm entering a new year without her. Like, what does that even mean? Like, how is that happening?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you, were you able to see her between
0: I, yes, I was able to see her. I was able to see her in the hospital and I feel like looking back on it, I have a lot of grace for myself because I really wanted to be as present as I could and show up. And at the same time, it was very, very hard to see her that way because she was on life support yeah. and there was lots and of machines the- and. I had to, like, keep reminding myself that it was still her. Like, I could still, like, talk to her and touch her and, like, hold her. Like, I didn't need to be afraid of her. But at the same time, it was just so jarring and so upsetting to see her in the hospital. And my experience with the doctors wasn't great. Like, at a certain point, I had to really... Like hunt someone down and ask them like, what is happening? And I need you to be really honest with me and tell me like that she's not going to make it. And I know that doctors don't want to do that,
1: but it is because that's that mentality of Success or failure. It's a it's as a opposed failing. to as opposed to like how can we reduce any suffering
0: exactly
1: and be sort of attending and honest in a caring way
0: totally. Yeah. But it is like there is a level of trauma there when you are asking like a medical professional to give you their opinion and they kind of just like oh well I don't know well she could or maybe this could happen. But it's like I'm I'm using like my eyes and I yeah. also just did this training program where we're talking about like all of the signs of like what. A body undergoes when, when they're in the process of dying. And I'm like, I feel really crazy. I'm, I'm watching this. I'm watching yeah, Cause it. you're
1: making me feel crazy. Cause I'm seeing something yes. and you're not naming it back I'm, to what we were exactly, talking like, about. It, yeah. it
0: took so long for someone to name it. And by the time they named it, like she was already actively dying. I, so I feel mm-hmm. really lucky for the time that I had, I feel a lot of sympathy and a lot of grace for myself and like because I really did push myself to be as present as I could. But yeah. there was such a short amount of time, and there were so many mom- moments where I was just like, I can't. I can't see her like this. I, I literally can't be in the room with her. And that's hard. That's like hard. Knowing that the last moments you have with someone, but then also being like, I mentally can't do this. Yeah.
1: When we come back, Naomi and I reflect on the expectations we have of ourselves about how we should be with someone when they're dying, and the regrets we often form, and the invitation to offer ourselves grace in the place of guilt. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Naomi Edmondson. Don't forget, if you want to keep up with the latest on the show, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want some behind-the-scenes news, the latest on my work with individuals and companies, the scoop on the book I'm writing, same name as the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, and more, visit www.lisakefauver.com. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. Sign up for the not-so-regular newsletter because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter there's so many conversations i have with people over the years about and there's differing opinions and there's a little bit grass is greener some people who didn't get to be with the person and have so much regret and remorse for not being there and then other people who were there and it was in some ways traumatizing yes. because they were seeing their person not as they remembered them in life and and to just soften for all, whatever place you're coming from to sort of soften back and say like, yes, we can be thoughtful about if and when we have the chance with the next person we love, what might we want to do? That's where I think the learning comes. But any energy we invest in shouldas and couldas of wouldas doesn't really do service to that person nor to ourselves because we do the best we can. Yeah. I mean, I was with my husband who same, you know, multiple brain surgeries and then was in a coma and, you know, he had tubes and his head was swollen and, you know, his head was banned, you know, like yeah, the whole, the whole thing. thing. And I remember getting into bed with him, you know, when they same, I had to push them and they finally said, no, he's yeah, not going to wake up. And um, and I remember getting into bed and made them take out all the tubes and wires and having to have a, a good, you know, I laid with him for nine hours until he passed, but it took me about the first 30 minutes to really give myself permission for having that visceral reaction to so like, oh my mm-hmm. God, he doesn't look like him. Yes. And then kind of settle into really seeing, being with his spirit yeah. and not, but that, you need time so for that, you need time, and that takes intention, and I didn't really know that it wasn't like that was the plan I had when I was,
0: going. yeah, I'm
1: just gonna <laughs> you know prepare for that, yeah. you know, I was forty years old and had been with a healthy husband before that, so, yeah. anyhow, that's just to say if you're someone who still thinks about whether you did or didn't feel as present as you wanted to or had judgmental thoughts or had you know, fear or whatever, whatever you experienced at that time, we are just doing the best we can with the most, you know, and ridiculous is not the right word, but just like unprecedented situation that none of us want to be in. We are
0: flailing out here. (laughs) We are flailing. (laughs) Um, And that's okay. And that's okay. Yes. And I think it's interesting because my thoughts around regret center less around the time that I had with her in the hospital because- I'm very clear on the fact that like I showed up as best I could and I did the best I yeah. can. In a pretty traumatic experience because uh, like it was a massive heart attack. There was like no like it was so it was, was so sudden and like I showed up how I could. I think my regrets um when I have those days when when they come up and they feel very loud, my regrets are more around the fact that I wasn't there when it happened. Yeah like definitely in very early part of like my grieving process, there was that moment of like, I wasn't, I wasn't there when it actually happened. And I didn't like, could it have been different? Had I been there? Like, would I have done something different? Would I have done something to shift it? And those lots come up. They don't come up as frequently, but I also am able to like soften them and like, I don't even want to say forgive myself, but I'm able to just feel like the thought is here and that's real. That's a valid thought. And we can't do anything different because we weren't there. Um, yeah. I also have just had a lot of thoughts around just like, I don't think she would have wanted me there, quite honestly. Like right. I was very much the baby of the family. I I really don't think that, I, I almost think that it happened that way because she
1: didn't want me there, didn't want quite to, honestly. To have you go through that experience. Yeah. yeah. I wish I could give credit to the person and I can't remember if it was in a conversation I had the other day or or reading something but they were talking about regret and how sometimes we get mired in regret and in some ways we do that because we're trying to have a story come out with a different outcome Absolutely. right which is impossible because but that's what we do as storying creatures yeah. right but this person said I always ask the families or ask the person to say, if you could have been there and done something different, would you have? And if the answer is yes, then that's all you need. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like your intentions, your spirit, your love, your caring, if you had had the access to do something, you would have done it. And that has to be enough. Yeah,
0: totally. Yeah. yeah.
1: When I read that, I was just like, oh, that just gave me all the feels. And I think we all have regrets, not just at end of life, but the fight we had, the thing we did say, or the thing we didn't say. Mm -hmm. And I'd be curious to know how you've start to think about this personally, but also I want to move into kind of some of the professional work you do as a grief guide, as a breath worker, but instead of sitting in that place in the past of regret or just, you know, rumination and not that I don't go there sometimes because we all do. We're human. So welcome to the club. It really has spurred me to be more committed and decisive to saying the thing, to not saying the thing, to being present, to living in such a way that I'm reducing my likelihood of regrets. So Mm -hmm. that's just my way of saying being really present in the world, being very tender, very honest, very Mm -hmm. direct. Mm -hmm. And sort of not missing those opportunities because I think the lesson, if you want to say, gift of losing someone in those ways where there might have been some complications around regret, is that it is an invitation to show up differently in each new day. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do, have you experienced that as you've moved through these two? And I didn't ask. I asked about Jalila. What What was your mom's Evelyn? Name? Evelyn, that's right. You said that, Evelyn. Thanks for sharing, Evelyn. Angelila, with us. Since losing the both of them, have you found yourself kind of showing up in different ways in the world in terms of presence and yes. attention?
0: I feel like I'm a pretty present person. So I don't think that the presence part is what has shifted, but I do very much feel like having the conversations and saying the thing has been a very big thing with me. And I think that comes less from a regret in conversations that Like, I wish I had had with my mom because I feel very fortunate in the fact that, like, I know without a shadow of a doubt that she loved me. And I feel very grateful that the time that I did have with her in the hospital, like, I got to say all of those things that, like, I wanted to say to her. So I definitely have closure there. But I think it's more around the idea of mortality has definitely become, like, very real. I mean, I am newly 33, so still. happy birthday thank you so it's still very young but at the same time like when you do lose someone and especially somebody who is like a parent or a parent figure there is a feeling of like wow people do die it happens yeah Yeah, this isn't just this it's not just like this rumor going around it's like we're out here dying it's it's real um so i feel like i very much have been shifted to having those conversations and naming the things and saying like like sharing feelings particularly when like Things hurt me because I feel like prior to that, I maybe would have tried to avoid having the conversation because I can be pretty conflict avoidant. But like, I think that this idea of mortality is very real and it's very present. It, it just makes me more committed to like naming those things when they come up so that at the very least, me not knowing what's going to happen, like at the end of this interview, tomorrow, the next day, I can at least say, like, I'm having and have had all the conversations that I feel like I need to have. To feel like if something happened, I wouldn't be sitting with a whole big long list of regrets and things I wish I had told people. Particularly telling people that I love them. Like I just tell people out of the blue randomly. I'm like, I love you. I'm so proud of you. I love that we know each other. I'm thinking of
1: you. Yeah, I'm thinking of you. I'm remembering that time we did the thing.
0: Yeah. I just texted a friend of mine this morning because I thought of her mother who passed um, a couple of years ago. And I was like, I just thought of Marie and like lit a candle for her. And I'm thinking of you
1: like those, mm. those,
0: those things that feel small, but are so big.
1: So profound. I mean, that could be an entire other show about how we show up for people. So I will, I will <laughs> keep myself from, <laughs> from, from going down that road, but yes, it's so simple. It's those little actions, those little gestures, those little words, especially with what you're talking about, which is when we help somebody else carry the memory forward of their person. I mean, that is the gift of service that is beyond anything else you could do in practicality or logistics or anything else.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I'm thinking of them with you. They are not forgotten because they're here with me too.
1: Yeah, and that comes back full circle to, in a way how we grieve in community. So of course we do it with our rituals at our memorials or our funerals, but when we send the little texts or share the, I just came across this photo or thing, we're continuing that act of grieving in community, even when it's not a gathering, like a formal ceremony.
0: That actually just makes me think of um, an experience that I had like very early on after my mom died. My friend, Erica, who is one of my closest dearest friends who was like that friend who was like come over sleep over let's just watch 90 day fiance we can talk about the thing we don't have to talk about the thing but I was Mm. I was pet sitting for them a few months afterwards and I remember I went upstairs I was going to like look at her like the books in her little library and there was an altar and on the altar was the program for my mom's funeral and I just remember, like, I had, like, a full tilt breakdown. I was like, oh, yep, my God, yep. I think that that's the sweetest thing, like, that anyone's ever done that I also didn't know about. Like, It was I, not
1: performative.
0: No, it wasn't performative. I just stumbled onto it. And I never would have known had I not, like, gone upstairs or had I not just done whatever I did. But I just remember in that moment being like, oh, my God, someone's really holding this memory with me. Like, it's not just me. Like, she lives with someone else. And that just, like, I was like, oh. <sighs> Oh, a puddle with like that, their dog looking at me like, are you okay?
1: You're like, no, but no. yes, but no. I'm no, not. but yes, but no, but like seriously, yes. <laughs> but kind of, but sort of fixed. <laughs> oh, that's such a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that with us. So it sounds like in the time between sort of Jalila passing and Evelyn passing, you were already moving through your training, through your hospice to be really Focusing your life and your career in this space of accompanying people, both in the dying process, but also sort of after in grief. Tell us a little bit about how the Glorious Hum sort of came to be, how your work as a grief guide, as a breath worker came to be. And in particular, maybe starting with one of the many things that I appreciate about your wisdom, about your work is the ways in which you've really thought about intersecting identities and how we do and don't show up broadly and intimately for different kinds of populations so and just yeah wherever you want to start but just bringing our audience if they don't know you already which they probably do
0: <laughs> yeah. into
1: how this work emerged
0: so evelyn passed and then we were in the new year and then we were in my birthday month and then we were in covid Um, yeah, in rapid succession.
1: Okay, universe. Yeah,
0: like, my God, just give it all to us at once. Why don't you? Um, so, so COVID happened. And I mean, COVID is still happening. But the early pandemic happened. And I just remember, along with just like feeling overwhelmed and all of that, I remember being like, wow, what does this really mean for like hospice and palliative care and like, death work? How do we how do we, we we can't really be with people. So then what is the next step? Like how, how do I show up in this space? And that's kind of where the Glorious Hum came from. I started with an Instagram and it really was a place for me to talk about just like death care and the things that I was learning. But then like early on in me creating it, my mom died and it shifted to being like about that, but also just processing like my grief in I guess a public forum, like being like, I actually really need to talk about this. And I'm very much somebody who, when things happen I'm like I need to read books I need to like join like clubs like I need too, to yeah I like, need like language and metabolize community. it and yeah yeah so that's kind of where my page came from just being like I am processing like one of the biggest things that's ever happened to me and you can interact and in the midst of
1: this insane thing that's ever happened to in the midst of a whole
0: like <laughs> global pandemic once in a lifetime like I'm so tired yeah. of saying that for my generation I, exactly. I don't want to say that yeah <laughs> I'm so tired of living through history but like yeah Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's kind of where my my page came from. So The Glorious Home really started with my Instagram page. And then kind of as I was learning more and learning more about grief and really came because I am a grieving person trying to make sense of it all. um, At a certain point in my grief, I kind of Was looking at the spaces where I was trying to find community. I was in just like a lot of really wonderful spaces that were really helpful. But then I also was in some spaces that, some spaces that didn't necessarily feel like safe spaces for me to share my grief as like a Black queer person, because I would have these moments of feeling like if I'm like me sharing my grief or sharing something, a grief experience that I had it sometimes would become about like a particular white person in that group who maybe felt hurt by something that I said. And then it became about, about like your grief. Yeah. So like one people having comments on like other people's grief is like really weird, but then also like there are like race is like a real thing. So if I'm saying like somebody, like a white person made a comment about something in my grief that made me feel a way, it then becomes about like the white person's hurt feelings over that comment. And like my grief mm-hmm. is decentered and the care is to them. So I found myself just in those spaces and being like, this doesn't feel good. And I feel really Mm -mm. angry and I leave feeling worse than I did when I came, which is, not the point because I already feel bad um and so I was looking like I was in BIPOC spaces too and like those spaces like black indigenous people color spaces like felt really good and alongside that I found myself being like wow wouldn't it also be really great if we just had spaces like for black people to grieve like that were specific to us to just get to show up and have our grief with each other to not be like learning experiences or like stepping stones for other people to process their grief like just spaces for us to be in community and be like you know what this shit is weird (laughs) it's a real weird out here um and that's where black folks grief came from like I started because like I needed that space for me um and I was really nervous to start it because I was still and still was and like very deeply am in my own grief experience and Was just like, who's gonna come? What does this even look like? Do I even know how to facilitate a group? Do I know how to start a group? Like, all of these things happen. And I found that when I just, after the encouragement of a lot, a lot of friends, and also just like, again, me needing this space, allowing myself to start it and being like pleasantly surprised that people came, but also feeling really sad for us that we were in community together dealing with this, like feeling really sad for all of our collective losses, but feeling really grateful for the people that came and like still continue to come and show up so vulnerably and authentically and really hold each other. Like I I created the space and I'm holding the space, but it really is about people holding. A community each- space. It's, yeah, it's communal. It's people holding and witnessing each other, you know?
1: Mm. Yeah. Oh, so many reflections I have on that. And I'm pausing a little bit because I'm trying to think about where even to begin. First is just an acknowledgement that, So much of the most, for me, the most powerful, impactful work when I've learned from other people are the people who found their way into the space because of their personal grappling with something. Of course, we love professional training, which you've done too, but I know for me, I've resonated the most as a learner, as a griever, as somebody who's in need of healing from other things. This has been true for other traumas and other experiences I've had. It's when I connect with somebody who's authentically, vulnerably walking through the space, seeing an unmet need, and then without expectation or structure or systems, just kind of creating, you know, being not playful is the wrong word. I was going to say that, but being experimental to sort of say, I like this aspect. I It's missing this aspect. How about we just sort of Make our way. And it sounds very much like that was the organic process that you found when you were going into these spaces that weren't feeling safe. And I recognize exactly the scenarios that you're talking about and have witnessed it. And I am certain because I am a white woman that I have done it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so I really appreciate and honor the way you took your own experiences and your own needs and worked in community to create something. Thank you. To create this Black folks grieve. Thank
0: you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just really wonderful to be in community with like other Black people, but also just like the breadth of who we are as people, like queer people, trans people, non-binary people, older people. Like there are some older people who come as well. Like, and it's really interesting to watch the intergenerational dynamic of somebody in their sixties talking about like their personal grief. And then also talking to us as like, 20, 30-year-olds and uh, like, and sharing that wisdom yeah. and also just like a genuine learning from each other of what grief... Yeah.
1: But within a safe context. Yes. And within Which is, a safe context. Uh, uh, there's can be nothing more critical when we're in a healing space, whether it's healing from trauma, healing from grief or anything. Mm-hmm. And also you might think about this in medical terms, like you need a safe... Uncontaminated space, because part of healing and grieving, again from whatever it is, is kind of laying bare and being exposed, and so we need the safety Mm -hmm. to contain us. Absolutely.
0: And I think the thing that I I don't want to say struggle with, but something that is very present for me with Black folks grieve, or really with like this any space that I am like facilitating, is the idea of safe space, because we as creators absolutely want to create safe spaces for people to be vulnerable and to be honest. And there's also the understanding that no space is completely safe.
1: No, so, And we can't control what for somebody else's exactly. safety all is. So yeah. I
0: absolutely do my best to create safer spaces to talk about grief with the, like, and like, before we even start, we start with like a breathing exercise. And then we start with like some ground rules, like this is the container and this is what we honor. And these are mm-hmm. the guidelines that we have in order to keep our space safe and also offering people the opportunity to add anything that I might've missed that would help them feel safe in the space too. Because I, I personally feel that the named safety of a space isn't for the creator to name, it's for the recipients to name. So if people name that, like they come and they share with other people, like this space feels like a safer space or it feels like a safe space then I'm like, okay, I love that.
1: I absolutely agree. This isn't kind of from the coordinator or the facilitator. This is from the people in community to name and to identify for themselves. Yeah. And I like that little, you know, that you moved from safe to safer space. Mm -hmm. And I think that really helps us stay vigilant and open to the fact that what that means is going to adapt as different people mm-hmm. come into our spaces and have different historical experiences of safety or non-safety and that that changes and i think for those of us who aren't part of groups but are trying to show up for one another at the individual level we can remember those same qualities and remembrances and reminders too that that we have to be always open and vigilant to the learning and recognizing that what we experience in the world As safety or safe or not safe, yes, is not. We cannot make presumptions about the next and then be open to be making amends as we and learn and change. Yeah,
0: yeah, being open to the idea of like things being co created experiences, yeah, which opens up even at the one
1: on one level, you know, even at the individual level. Yeah, when we come back, Naomi explores what she's learned and witnessed as she's been facilitating Black folks' grief and the importance of having spaces to feel seen and held. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast with my guest, Naomi Edmondson. I'm so grateful to get emails and DMs about the impact of this show, truly. So if you love the show, if you've learned something useful, felt understood, or maybe a little less alone in your grief, I'd love to ask you to head over to Apple Podcast and leave a rating and write a review. Has there been something in the time that you've been running black folks grieve that has surprised you that you've learned from, you know, that you might want to share with us? Um, I didn't prep you for this question, <laughs> so okay if you No, I I mean the first response that I have and
0: like Following your first brain is like always usually where I try to go, but the first thing that came up that surprises me when I started was just just how much intense grief has gone unvalidated like some of the things that people have shared in group, which I am so grateful and honored that they felt safe enough to share, have been some really big things that they have just been moving through and have like never had anybody say to them that's grief like you can be sad about that. Like, like yeah. per, that's person, the permission giving. Yes. It's the yeah. permission giving. And that's like deaths that have gone like unvalidated, maybe like due to disenfranchised grief, like due to like some stigma around how it happened or why it happened
1: or the relationship between the exactly. two people. But there's yeah. also
0: just like those like less tangible things that we lose. Yeah. Like yeah. loss of like housing, like housing instability or like loss of community when somebody comes out as queer or like the loss of a stable job or really with this pandemic, like the loss of perceived safety, like the loss of like our normal and like what that looked like for us. So I think one of the things that just surprises me is that especially us as Black people, like how many things we have been grieving for so long that we've just been carrying that don't get validated by society, that we are just constantly like expected to show up and push through and be strong through and like have that narrative put on us. But being able to be in spaces with each other where we get to look at each other and be like, no, you don't. No. Like you don't have to be strong in this space. You can fall. You apart. get to
1: set it down here. Yeah,
0: and and you also don't have to apologize for it. Like I tell people all the time, like please don't apologize for crying. Please don't apologize for cursing. We're all I adults offer those here. Same ground
1: rules. I was like, no apologizing for crying and swearing. We're those adults. Are two of mine. <laughs> Lean in. <laughs> yeah.
0: So that very much surprises me and and saddens me, but also makes me really glad that people are in the space
1: and sharing. Yeah. It's so important what you just said there, which is, uh, you know, I'm always trying to pull out just, we're sort of, we're grief illiterate around death loss, but we are particularly illiterate or avoidant, I don't know with the word, around non-death losses, yes. those non-finite losses. And that's sort of at the meta level or just sort of across the board. And then, as you said, in different communities, power structures and, you know, sort of white dominant culture. Mm-hmm permissions or denies permission to different people to name things as grief. So it's not just that individuals or groups or communities are denied, but because that is so inundated to how we work in the world, then we deny ourselves. And I'm using that in the collective, but certainly in certain communities, we deny our own grief. So the fact that these light bulb moments are happening in your groups where people are naming, seeing, being honored and affirmed is maybe the first step in even just, I don't know, lifting the weight of that dominant culture that denied the grief in the first place. That's cathartic.
0: Yes, and I, and I also think too that there's a part of it where it's like once you find safer spaces with people who are opening up as well, it, there's this idea of like, there are people that can hold this. Like maybe my present community can't hold it. And maybe they can't because they are literally so inundated with loss themselves. Because again, like thinking of like black, brown, indigenous communities, we are so inundated with so much collective loss, like collective
1: loss. 24-7.
0: 24-7. And then we also have like the overarching losses of the pandemic, like we are just, we are inundated with so much loss that sometimes we we actually just can't, we can't hold for other people because we are yeah. just trying to hold ourselves together. But like, yeah. I, I really do love for people when they come to the group and they share that they're able to see like, there are people who can hold it.
1: And even if it's for a time, like I think we can't always for ourselves or for others, hold it all, all at once. That's too much, too much. You know, like our nervous system, our embodied spiritual selves can't so- creating different avenues or outlets where we can kind of for a time or for a space take turns holding and being held. That's the way we begin to sort of integrate or metabolize our grief. I think we can do it one kind of exchange at a time, I think. I think that's such an important reminder and and something you just said, I want to reflect back to you and to our audience because I think it's so important. Whenever somebody asks me, like, how do I show up and be a good grief supporter? Or like, you know, how do I do that? My first question to you is, do you know how to hold space and bear witness to your own grief? Mm, What a beautiful response. It's true. Because the degree to which we struggle, I think, across the board to show up for people in their pain without launching into fix-it solution mode is because we haven't really sat with self-compassion and grace to be a witness to our own pain often yes which is so hard but
0: also the pandemic kind of forced many of us to do that it was Absolutely. It, it wasn't it was the first time that shutdown was the first time that a lot of us had time to to be with our thoughts in a way mm-hmm. that we have not maybe ever had we've been- I know
1: I know that was me. Moving, moving, moving. Yeah. Absolutely. I actually think it's why conversations around grief and palliative and hospice, it feels to me, and it's hard to tell because I'm in the space, so maybe it's just my own little bubble, but it does feel like there's more conversations, there's more hunger for learning and knowledge and experience. And I think exactly to your point, this time forced people to kind of, the quiet and the stillness really forced people to sort of, begin, at least, to reckon with the fact that there are things they haven't reckoned with and that they have to learn how to do it. Because again, how would you know how to do it when there's nothing in our culture or our life who's ever taught us how to do it? Everything in our culture is like, do, go, be, solve, next.
0: I have this theory that, like, especially for Western culture, that we are so obsessed with like youth and being eternally young that we make no space for the fact that we're going to die because if you're constantly
1: 100% you know like
0: none of us get out alive none of us get out alive
1: (laughs) I say (laughs) that all the time but if we're always
0: like obsessed with like staying youthful staying young staying like like that there is no room to be like and you're not going to be young forever and one day your body is gonna fail and you are gonna die one day like there's no room there's no room in a society for that if we're just constantly like eternal youth
1: yeah yeah Absolutely. And it keeps us from being present to what is and to appreciating what is and to the wisdom of what is at any age, at any stage. The
0: beauty of the shift. Like it yeah. like there's a there's a blessing in not being eternally young. Like there's yes. so much knowledge that you would miss if you were just eternally youthful.
1: And nature and our very existence, not just the human beings, because mm-hmm. we're just one of many, many yes. beings. It's not um, all about us. It's not all about us, though. We like to, you know, boy, do we like to make it all about us. A little self-centered. But when we think about just the way in which every being works, change is the only constant. Mm -hmm. Growth, maturation, moving towards, you know, a death. And if you believe in kind of rebirth or regeneration, I kind of, I don't have a religious history or practice, but I really do believe that the act of carrying memories forward is the work that we do of the regeneration and the rebirth. Mm-hmm. So if we, instead of fear or grip or push away from that, just stay as we are in youth, mm-hmm. we miss all the richness of what's going to be happening anyways, because yeah. that's just the way life yeah. goes. And like, don't is. fight that flow. No, and you can't. <laughs> and you can't. That's a funny it's thing. An illusion. You can't. Oh, this has been such a rich conversation as we begin to wind it down today. I'm just wondering if there are spaces or topics or you know events or actions or things that you're curious about as you grow into the space again in this parallel personal professional walk that you're taking. Yes. what's kind of on your mind as you're moving forward into this year?
0: um What
1: a beautiful question.
0: I feel like I'm sitting with like my own personal shifts. um, And I think what's very much on my mind is, as I kind of said at first, like I just turned 33 and then Jesus years, people like to call it. I've very much just been sitting with, I guess, like this version of adulthood that I'm in and this version of myself that I, I am in this. My birthday is always a pretty difficult time for me because I feel like there is, and I'm sure other people can relate to this too, there is the joy of making it to another year, but that's always quickly followed up by the fact that it's another birthday my mother isn't present for. Yeah. It. Um, yeah. And for this particular birthday, I actually um, went to Jamaica for my birthday because that is where my grandmother was from. Mm. So I really spent my birthday being in the place where she was.
1: and Communing with her. Yes.
0: Having all the food, like being in the water... And and just feeling really close to her. And it was really cathartic for me. Like the first night I, that I got there, I feel like I really allowed myself to like just cry and be sad in a way that I haven't in a very long time. But just like being in Jamaica, I just felt so present to her. And also I went by myself, which felt very important as well. Cause like, I really just wanted space to just be. So I feel and to like- to
1: bear witness to yourself. Exactly.
0: So I feel like where I'm sitting very much now is just like, like what, what is this adulthood thing? What is this version of myself that I'm showing up for? And how is this version of myself going to grow and expand within this particular field of like grief? Because this very much feels like where I want to be and feels comfortable, which is pretty crazy to say, because grief is pretty uncomfortable, but Mm -hmm. I guess I'm just like you, I'm just, I'm staying curious as to what comes next.
1: That's exactly the word I was going to say. It was just that staying curious. Um, yeah, ever curious. I love that. Well, what a gift and what an honor to be in conversation with you today. I know for sure it won't be our last. No,
0: not at all. At
1: all. Thank you so much for joining me today on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. Such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for holding this space along with us during today's conversation with Naomi Edmondson. You can learn more about her at the link in the show notes for today's episode. I want to thank Giles Smith of Alafia Sound for creating the music for the show and the team at StudioPod for helping me produce it. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you... I hear you and I'm holding you in my heart.